Hi, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about the user experience of cities, the social value of our places, and how to create great spaces between the buildings. From Dundee to Doha, museums are often deployed as catalysts for change in places seeking a Bilbao effect. But for Karen Livingston, Director of Master Plan and Estate for the Science Museum Group, their five museums across the UK have a much wider remit to connect local researchers with unparalleled collections, and to inspire young visitors into science and technology careers. We speak in her offices in the London Science Museum about the role of museums in placemaking and the Science Museum Group's big plans for York on the largest brownfield regeneration site in the country. So I'm Karen Livingstone. I'm the director of Master Plan and Estate for the Science Museum Group which includes the Science Museum in London, the National Railway Museum in York, Locomotion in County Durham, um, the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester, and we also have two large storage sites, one in West London and a 545-acre airfield near Swindon. So I think... um probably interesting place to start is to talk about that estate as a whole um, and how your approach changes based on what city you're in and what place you're in. So it's, I mean our estate is probably one of the largest and most complex museum estates in the country because we have seven sites, all of very different character and all in very different geographical locations and cities and therefore have very different contexts, audiences, missions and um, places that we need to engage with in different ways. So as a group of museums, um, a, a core part of my job is making sure that we are transforming and developing our estate and understanding uh, where our strengths and opportunities are and managing that effectively that we, you know, we have uh, numerous listed buildings and historic sites and um, sort of responsibilities to just maintaining that. But actually the, the, the core part of my job is about understanding the place that each of those museums are in and uh, how we can engage with audiences, uh, local authorities, cities in order to make our museums at the heart of the place that they're in, to be the core cultural offer and to, for example in York, to work as part of a very integrated partner in this the wider city master plan to um, make uh, a place and a transformation uh, that, that really changes um, the visitor experience and for our purpose it changes the way that our visitors engage with science, technology, engineering and maths. When we talk about museums in in placemaking, often it's associated with the idea of Bilbao, that these are places to um, attract tourists to the city or people from outside the city in. Is that how the Science Museum is supposed to function in these places? It's a little bit part of it, but I, I think the, you know, there are still some excellent examples of where that sort of single cultural offer can change a place. I mean, the V&A at Dundee is a tremendous example of that. 
Um, but for us, it, I think it's slightly less um, overt and a bit softer. So for us, it's really about um, inspiring futures, engaging with people in a way, making our museums um, into something that people wouldn't Maybe, maybe they don't necessarily want to come to the Railway Museum because they don't really see why railways and engineering are relevant to their lives. We, um, we want to sort of broaden and diversify our audiences and we also want to capture uh, the spirit of uh, why these kinds of uh, subjects and careers are important. Um, the, we, you know, we're in a very privileged position where we have these extraordinary national collections which date back hundreds of years. You know, we have the first train and first computers and all these things. But it's telling why are those historical collections important and why are museums important in telling those stories. It's because we can tell the long history, the long view of history about innovation and imagination. And we can tell that story looking to the future and try and help people see themselves in that story and that's particularly important for young people, for women and, and trying just to engage people differently. But equally things like, you know, for example again in York we have a museum that's, you know, by any standards it's pretty run down. It's two uh, warehouse buildings which are actually very historically important, split by a road. The, the visitor experience, the quality of the experience doesn't meet what I would expect, what visitors expect a National Museum to do, yet it's at the heart of the biggest brownfield site, the biggest uh, development in the country, it's even bigger than King's Cross, we, and it's the only brownfield site in the country where we already have footfall of 750,000 visitors coming to our site, to our museum, but we want to grow and build that and we want to raise the quality, we want to create better buildings, better placemaking, and to do that in a very integrated way with the city. Um, a huge proportion of our visitors will be tourists, so tourism and you know the economy is important, but there are also local residents, there are school children, there are lots of people that we want to engage with and to help them see and find meaning and science in their everyday lives. So what is the vision for York? The vision for York was called Vision 2025 and that's linked to the um, anniversary of the railways in 2025 and it's really to transform the Railway Museum into a place for many different kinds of people but particularly to use our collections and the stories around them to engage and inspire and to get more people involved in engineering and because it's the rail museum the great emphasis there is on uh, the railway sector and we have great uh, support and partnership with network rail they're one of the major partners in the overall city plan but also to broaden out people's understanding of what technology and engineering means and to help people see themselves in those future careers. So it's about skills development, inspiring and being part of it, but telling those th stories through the museum collections because that's what national museums, that's what all museums can do. We start with our objects and our collections and tell stories from there. And museums are changing a lot. I mean, when you mm -hmm. talked, I mean, earlier you were showing us some of the spaces talking about letting the light in. Mm -hmm. um, and how, how is the way that we're changing these as places uh, through architecture and design? Yeah. And it, what is that about? Yeah, so that, I think that's really, that, that question is really why I was brought in to do this job seven years ago. It was to combine what the Science Museum group uh, museums already do, which is tell amazing stories about 
uh, signs through their collections and exhibitions and programming. But actually, our approach is to use architecture and design and the quality of the experience and the place that you're in also speak to that. So many of our buildings are beautiful historic listed structures. They tell stories about innovation and um, uh, enterprise, but actually they don't speak to that at the moment. They're not integrated with the cities that they're in. They're pretty run down. Um, you know, to use another example, in Manchester, which is uh, the site of the earliest surviving passenger railway station in the world, it's pretty fenced off, so it's a sort of closed site. And by working with um, the city um, who are building the factory, you know, the huge uh, multi-million pound arts venue is right on our doorstep. I mean, it literally is on our border. And all around that is um, a development called the St. John's Quarter. And on the other side is Castlefield. So our plan working with those, uh, the developers in the city is to make our site permeable. So we'll be throwing open the gates and uh, creating links through to the factory so you can, a bit like the South Bank, you know, you can go from the National Theatre into different spaces. Uh, we'll have F&B offers, we'll have different programming, we'll have rehearsal studios on our site. If you live in Castlefield and need to get into the centre of town, you can walk through our site and pick up a coffee on the way. You can enjoy the historic, I mean, Manchester is actually surprisingly short of historic districts you can enjoy this extraordinary historic site and its, its um, importance in Manchester's industrial power in the world. So it's trying to, we're opening ourselves up in a way that isn't natural to museums, more of a campus approach. So this um, role of, of culture in these places or even education mm -hmm. that the, the Science Museum has in is distinct to each of these cities. Yeah. Um, how in general do you see that operating in the city? Why is it important to the city? Or how, how do cultural venues like museums contribute, um, anchor? Mm. I mean, what, what are they as, as places? Yeah. Well, they're all, I mean, the people are different. The, the character of a city is different. The politics are different. The way people dress and behave is different. You know, places are, as you move around the country, every place has its own character, but it also has its sort of common commonalities, if you like. And so I suppose for us, um, being in the cities and being successful in those cities is about understanding the place and the people. And you can't, you know, there are some things that I do which have to be consistent across our group and which, um, you know, just for the practicalities of maintaining an estate, for example, you have to have the things behind the scenes which um, have to, to, to run smoothly and consistently. But actually the, the joy of it is that um, you're trying to find in each of these places what's special and unique about it and what, what our contribution to that is. So our museum director, so each of the museums has a director who's responsible for leading in that place. Uh, you know, they spend uh, huge amounts of time trying to work out uh, relationships um, in the city, uh, the universities, the research ethic, the city's uh, ambitions for traffic management or um, for cultural offers and, and how and, and finding how we're better together 
in a place and growing together. And I think it's, it's, it's I suppose it's one of the great um, tensions we feel within our organization is that, you know, what is unique to that place and what is, where are we better together as a group? But actually, ultimately, it is about the living and breathing of those museums and those sites. Um, and, and because we're there to do it for our audiences and the large proportion of our audiences are the people who live and work in those places and so you have to reflect and respond to that. So there's the outreach that we think of probably when we think about the science museum, we think about going there with kids or going there with classes and that kind of as a source of education. But then there's also this other layer which is about research and universities and yeah. knitting into the wider place. Yes. So, every, I mean, a lot of what we do is in partnership with um, universities and, you know, Manchester, again, as an example, it's the home of, you know, they invented graphene. So it's a natural thing for us in our museum to reflect, um, well, you know, those are sort of world changing discoveries and research. and. Um, the history of technology and industry in Manchester is extraordinary and it had an extraordinary international reach. So understanding that, working with the people who, um, who, who do that research, uh, being one channel in which they communicate through, um, and also how we collect and how we, um, how we make sure that we're capturing that sort of vibrancy and sort of intellectual output is important too. When you're looking within the buildings, um, in terms of uh, they are like little internal streets and, and, and buildings within buildings and often these states are quite complicated as well. What is your approach to, to the movement of people and the wayfinding and the peculiarities of how mm. people navigate these places and what can maybe we learn from as a city from, from this little world inside? Gosh, it's so hard. I mean, because we are, we, yeah, each of our locations is very sort of complex uh, little um, uh, set of streets and communities as you say so I think a, a large part of what I'm doing actually is stripping back so taking out uh, interventions uh, false walls uh, you know there was a phase in the 1970s and 80s where windows and museums got blocked up but you know the so opening up the windows and the views outside um, we, when we're planning galleries one of the words I use in our briefs is we need to be generous with our space so let's not cram it full of stuff let's make sure that we've got enough space for people to gather and to just mill around to sit down uh, to have a cup of coffee because all of that's fine <laughs> um, we, 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 we focus very much on sort of being able to see what's ahead of you, so sort of thresholds and using colours and um, wayfinding. We have completely refreshed our wayfinding across the group. Uh, in the last two years we've been working with North on a new brand. We have a new brand for the group, but again part of my job has been to make sure that the teams are implementing that brand in a way that suits the site. It's, you know, it's a sort of template that you then think, right, what are the particular uh, challenges of this site in terms of knowing how to get around. And to go back to the Manchester example and trying to turn that into more of a campus is working out where are the key decision points, what do people need to know, how do they navigate, how do they get up and down the different levels, um, and how do they how do they just but architecture and it's not just about signs, it's about using the architecture and the colours and the sort of um, the natural sort of viewpoints of a site as well and um, yeah, stripping back is often better than adding but you do have to be clear and bold and 
it's, it's a hard job, and I think we, we never get it 100% right. I mean, one of the constant, I mean, in my entire career in working museums is the maps hard to read and we can't see where we're going. Nobody's ever quite cracked it, I think, but we keep trying <laughs> and we keep adjusting. Um, but it is hard, I think, in complex buildings. Have you seen the way people use the museum changing over time in terms of people wanting to gather there or have a coffee? Is, is that different? Very definitely, um, and we encourage that. I mean, I think at the Science Museum, we, um, you know, our big challenge here has not been about growing numbers, it's about changing um, when people come and diversifying our audience. So we've been putting on offers like different kinds of cafes and things, and that, that attracts different people who have different expectations and different ways of moving around. But the other thing is when it gets really busy here, at the half terms and you know peak times, um, it's very hard for, for people, our visitors to know how to sort of release the pressure by moving up the building. And so um, we're working hard on putting in new lifts and getting the old lifts back up into service um, and, and explaining uh, through either people they meet on the museum floor or through new wayfinding that actually it's not just the ground floor, there's, there's lots to see around the whole building. And so trying to sort of, we, I mean, we follow people around. Um, we do movement studies, you know, we're, we're constantly alert to where people are moving and how, you know, where the log jams are and what the, what the particular pressures are so we can keep trying to improve and ease that pressure. What are some of the peculiarities that people do? What do they behave like? That oh, well, no, it's not. It's more, it's more to do with that, you know, there are particular log jams. I mean, our, our audiences, a lot of people come with push chairs. They come in large groups. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of families with children of different ages. So what do you do with the toddler while you're a teenager wanting to do some of the interactive stuff? And it's just trying to recognize that, um, you know, there are some people who don't come with children who actually want to be, have slightly quieter, more sophisticated experience. And it's just trying to find the balance of movement and offer that allows all of those different sort of little communities, if you like, to navigate around and have, a, have the best experience that they can and enjoy being at the Science Museum and get something out of their visit, whatever what, that may be. One of my favorite things is always the explainers mm -hmm. who Brilliant. really bring a lot to the yeah. museum through their, their demonstrations. Has that um, you know, always been the case? Has that changed? Is the explainer always central to the vision across all of it changes um, depending on the site, but in terms of the science museum, that's the, the, those explainers are, are part of how the science museum's always communicated. So our first interactive galleries and our first explainers date back to the 1930s, I think. They don't look like they do now. <laughs> These are all brilliant, bright, young people. Most of them got science backgrounds. In the old days, it was sort of, you know, slightly more formal in sort of men in coats with sort of sticks lecturing at you. But, you know, and there's wonderful footage of all of that. But it's where um, science communication and, and what we do uh, really began. And it's all based on research and really, we don't teach here. We, we're here to inspire, you know, we're not a classroom. Um, but we can tell stories and we can get people excited and the explainers are really key to that, particularly sort of drawing people in. Um, and they really come into their own in our offer called Wonder Lab, which is the interactive galleries. Um, when I was giving you a tour earlier, we were talking about Wonder Lab being underpinned by science communication, but we, we deliver it differently in each site. 
So in London, we've worked with um, Muff Art and Architecture and commissioned quite a lot of pieces from artists because, we're, again, we're you know, I'm, I'm trying to help my colleagues find new ways of getting people to engage. And uh, underlying our mission, again, is that science is a cultural activity. Science and art are not different things. Creativity is important. So the way we design things speaks to that message and the way we have our wonderful explainers then helping people to sort of uh, engage with that and do experiments and um, enjoy themselves <laughs> is really important. There was a moment where we thought it would all be apps and um, holographs and uh, video touchscreens um, and we would navigate our museums just digitally really. Um, do you think that's that moment has gone. We, I mean, we are very engaged in the digital world, but actually the majority of the things that you can do in a museum don't need screens. And I'm a huge advocate of the screen-free experience, actually, because you, know, they, you can do that at home. Nearly everybody, sweeping generalization, but does have access to that at home or school or whatever. Um, what we want to do is engage with experiments and real objects and real stories and real people. That said, we do actually have a very uh, strong digital strategy and uh, as we're moving, we're moving our collection out of a store in West Kensington down to Swindon, everything is being photographed, digitised, so that we have, we're able to do a lot more in terms of, uh, there will be apps and games and things online, um, in terms of the museum offer, we're just working on some experimental um, offers. We're doing a lot of VR. So when we acquired Tim Peake's space capsule, Tim worked with us on a VR experience so you can do his space descent with him. The other thing we're, we're really um, developing at the moment is the idea to do a digital studio. So where you can have really immersive, interactive experiences in a sort of uh, 360 Room. There's amazing ones in Paris and Tokyo now. Where, so using that technology to communicate um, and engage stories that you can't do through a screen, it's much more sort of immersive. So you could, I don't know, um, uh, drive a, um, uh, what do you call it? There's, um, drive a car or uh, experience big data or, you know, just dance, <laughs> um, make patterns learn about algorithms in a, in a very different sort of way. So that, that's where we're headed. And you know, you will find uh, little iPad screens and interpretation in our galleries, but actually it's much more interesting and exciting to use uh, digital technology in that way, in a way that you can't get at home. The VR normally makes me feel ill as yeah, it is, so <laughs> I imagine the Team Peak experience will be pretty yeah. accurate. Well, in yeah, the I, yeah. <laughs> I have to confess I haven't done it for that reason, <laughs> but everybody tells me it's amazing <laughs> and you know, terrifyingly uh, realistic. Do you think that this, um, the fact that we are increasingly, you know, uh, touching screens or experiencing um, the kind of wider world through through digital technology is is making this desire to get museum objects out you know, out from behind the glass and and make everything a bit more touchable, um, more of a reality or um, yes yes and no. I mean, I think I think the the. <laughs> reminding ourselves that our collections are the core reason we're here and that these are real objects and they're pretty robust I think is very 
you know, it, it is core to what we do. We have to use things like technology carefully. So, you know, people love knowing how things work. So we can't run some of our engines all day, every day. They, you know, just, it's too much of a burden, but we can film them running. And one, on the days where they're not being demonstrated, they can, you know, we can show a little film on an iPad or whatever. But it doesn't replace the experience. And everything we do needs to direct people back to those objects and those stories, and, the, and very importantly, the people behind those stories. So it's you know it's a sort of age-old debate in museums about where you find that balance, but I'm I'm all for looking up and looking around and touching and experiencing and not always being behind the screen. But you know I love social media, I love technology, I love digital things, but you need to find a bit of balance. And we have beautiful buildings and beautiful things. And look around. <laughs> I want to talk about your approach to choosing architects and, and architecture in general and its place in, in creating a sense of place. Um, so I suppose, how, how, do you, how do you begin? Um, with the brief. So, I mean, we, we have created a, you know, we have a vision for each of our museums of where we want to take it. Uh, in terms of our sort of audience and impact. And part of my job, the main part of my job, really is working with my colleagues to establish physically how we do that and to identify the opportunity. And we spend a lot of time working up the brief uh, that will, from an architecture and design point of view, will deliver to that vision. And we've carefully uh, looked across our site about where the opportunities are. and very deliberately uh, worked with uh, a range of different types of architects and designers, but who collectively are working to the same sort of overall strategy of transforming. So although you, know, you might have mass gallery designed by Zaha Hadid, it's very deliberately next to information age, which is about the internet and technology designed by Universal Design Studios. Um, you know, Wilkinson Air are doing our medicine galleries. It's the biggest undertaking of the whole museum, and it's also delivering a new lifts and circulation. So, it, you know, having a, an end game that all of these things add up to has been very important to set out from the start. Um, I, I've also worked very hard to make sure that we're a good client that we understand how to run design competitions, that we understand the terms of engagement and the professionals that we're asking to come and work with us. Um, and I think we, over the course of the years, we've also, by I, I hope, I mean, you can ask them, but I hope by running good processes and having good briefs that we've also um, attracted good teams. And I think we're, we've been quite successful at finding, matching the right teams to the right jobs. Um, and working uh, collaboratively and closely throughout the entire process and supporting the process. So, you know, we've, we've, we've got a wonderful list of people that we've been working with across the group. Um, Mary Duggan, Wilkinson Air, Hat Projects, Gita Geschwentner, Carmody Groart. You know, I'm, I'm going to get into trouble for missing people out, but, but I think that has been very deliberate and very carefully crafted, but it does rely on us knowing how to do that and being a good client. And um, just, you know, Hat Projects are doing our new patron centre. They're sort of refurbishing a beautiful old post office building that hasn't been part of our estate. It was 
occupied by Royal Mail until quite recently. And I, you know, in the course of the last 15 years, I've probably interviewed them for about three different jobs, and we hadn't found the right match until this one, and there was sort of the magic moment, said, this is, this is it. This is the right team, the right time, the right sort of collaboration for us. And they were delightfully patient with that process, but they also, you know, I'm glad we waited to work with them. It's absolutely the magic project for us with them. So it's um, a little bit of orchestration, a little bit of um, crafted process and, uh, and opportunity. What are some of the things that really delight you in that process? Is it the, materi the materials? Is it the... Um is it space and light? Is it, uh... it? It really depends. I mean, I think if we've got our brief right, um, everybody who uh, who who then um, presents to us, um, because we usually ask for you know a short list of four or five to um, take the brief and sort of present a sort of concept or or an approach for which we pay. <laughs> Um, and you usually get four or five completely different responses and people understand the briefs in different ways. But usually you find one team who just, where the relationship feels right, they've understood the brief right, even though they're sort of co it's still concept stage and you might not actually end up building what they pitch. It just, it, it just seems to fit. Um, and, you know, there are... I think probably the people who apply as well, they're a little bit self-selecting. They know what they're good at. They know the projects that they want to work on. You know, um, Muff Art and Architecture on Wonderlab, you know, Liza Fior has this, is completely embedded in doing things for uh, public realm and play and engagement. She's very involved in the science and the technology behind it. So it just, it, you know, it was the perfect marriage in a way. So. And we've talked about Zaha Hadid and the passion for math and algorithms. Yes, yeah. I mean, Zaha, um, as you know, was a mathematician. She was very interested in working with us because it was a permanent gallery that was talking about um, maths in everyday life. The gallery is an expression of mathematics in practice. It was, yeah, it was a, um, it was a magical marriage. And, I mean, not to say that all the other people who didn't pitch weren't equally interesting but you have to you have to pick one and for us that was right at the very beginning um, of the master plan so whatever six six years ago or something and uh, we knew that we could do something bold um, I knew that I could work with uh, her and her team and that we could successfully deliver that project and it, actually it's still of all the projects and museums I've done over the last 20 odd years it still remains my favorite uh, and I think it's, it's created a very important legacy, um, unintended legacy for Zaha, um, as a, the only permanent gallery um, in her lifetime, but also uh, in terms of changing the way people perceive the Science Museum, perceive us as a client of architecture and design, and engage differently with our subject matter, because you know, maths is not people's favorite subject. <laughs> Um, and it's very interesting that there's a sort of unintended consequence of that gallery is that people slow down when they, they cross the threshold. It wasn't part of our strategy and part of our brief, but actually you can just see the pace change, you can, the acoustics change, and, and everybody from the little ones all the way through 
slow down and start to look and, and behave differently and think differently and, and you won't, well, you might, you'll find a few mathematical equations in there, but not many. And so it's, it's, it's done a lot to really um, advance uh, the way people think about the Science Museum and particularly the Science Museum as a client of architecture and design. What I like about um, that gallery and the process that you've um, described to me of designing it is how mathematical the process was from mm -hmm. the beginning. I mean, you can maybe talk about uh, that, about going to their studio to understand Yes. Yeah. So the whole the, the whole gallery, um, well, the, the the concept of it was based on the um, the airflow of the. Uh, there's an aeroplane, 1930s aeroplane, which was a very experimental aeroplane in terms of aerodynamics and takeoff and landing. And the the whole gallery is designed around the algorithms and mathematical equations um, represented physically in the gallery, and it was done with um, very interesting and, and lovely and bright team of um, experts in computational aided design. I think I've got that right. But anyway, it was maths, computer technology, programming and maths. And it wasn't done on paper. And so we would um, go to the studio um, to see all the different sort of design iterations and different shapes. And you know, they would stress test. There's a sort of rather beautiful um, uh, pod, we call it, which um, physically represents the airflow and we, you know that we had to test all the structure and the different shapes and forms and the pattern in the floor and that kind of thing um, and of course we can't run that software in our museum so you know we'd have to go there and it was a very different way of uh, working and designing because it was all done using that um, uh, very interesting software that they developed and the research and the, and the sort of um, mathematical background of a lot of people who are working on that project. Um, quite different from the sort of, um, you know, drawing-based um, approach that we'd done with other, um, other architectural practices. And, and I loved it. It was really interesting. And they were, they were, you know, such a great team to work with. So intelligent, so sort of creative. And so uh, on top of the sort of research and technology and sort of mathematics behind the whole process. I want to turn to um, this site in London where we are in your, in your office. And I want to ask you about Exhibition Road, mm. which has gone through several iterations. It was the, the pioneering shared surface yeah. scheme. And it's increasingly less of a shared surface, but I imagine that you know it quite well. Yes. So um, I don't know if you'd like to share a little bit about what we've learned from yeah. that development. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I yes, I worked in South Kensington before, before that ever existed, and so you know we do have to remember that it, it's uh, its transformation is extraordinary over the course of the last twenty years, and. Um, Yes, it is not quite the, as pure as the original concept. And I think that's uh, got a lot to do with um, how, the, how the vision can get eroded because people live here and people work here and you need to park and, you know, that, that lots of things evolve and change. And, um, you know, having, it, I think it's, it's been very difficult to, for that vision not to be eroded, actually, and I think it's 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 quite problematic. And also with the, you know, the, the, the three museums and you know, well, there's something called the Exhibition Road Cultural Group, where all the cultural institutions, the museums, Imperial College, 
um, Royal Albert Hall, you know, we do we do meet regularly to try and think about um, how to work with the council and with each other to keep keep um, that erosion at, at bay. And you know, the V&A's um, uh, Exhibition Road Quarter extension has again it's you know, it's a constantly changing landscape. For, I think one of the current uh, battles, if you like, or, or you know, or even a design opportunity is the terrorism threat in London, and how that's changing the way again you need to think about putting up barriers and queuing, and you know we have more visitors coming to South Kensington in a year than go to Venice. Uh, how does that affect the tube station? You know, I've been last week I was at a meeting about they're about to start creating step-free access in South Kensington Tube. You know, the, the environment around us is very difficult. Um, and I think the danger is that um, if, you're not, if you don't have a clear sort of design remit and a design brief, people react and respond and then they put in um, more parking or more bicycles. And it's sort of, it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction. And actually, the, for things like terrorism, and we experience this in Manchester as well, if the anti-terrorist squad say, you have to put in blockades, you have to do it. You can't argue against it. However, I think, and you know, to be fair, the RBKC are, and um, all the museums are now starting to work on this with um, Dixon Jones. Is if you, so I think if you have to have terrorism barriers, let's design them properly. There's a design opportunity there for someone. You know, let's not just plonk concrete blocks there. Which is because, what they've done. Which is what they've done, because that's what they have to do, and that's all that's available. And they have to be able to respond quickly and get it done, because there's nothing more important than people's safety. But the, the, the concern then is that that becomes permanent and nobody's taking it to the next step, which is let's design and integrate it properly. Let's go back to the drawing board, look at the whole um, landscape of Exhibition Road and start sort of uh, integrating things better and removing the things that don't work. But, you know, the, the <laughs> it's, it's, it's a challenge because of all the different pressures of traffic flow and residents and different needs. Do you think the, there was a missed opportunity to remove the cars from Exhibition Road? Yes, yeah, yeah. They were never supposed to be there, but they sort of crept back in, I think, in the planning process because of, uh, you know, uh, lobbying of residents or, you know, people who use the space, so, yeah. So maybe that's another one that could come in later? Do you think there's still...? I would hope so. I mean, I know the three museum directors, so our museum director is Ian Blatchford and you know, the Natural History Museum and the V&A, they're very vocal and very engaged with the council about how do we do better? What, what, are, what you know, let's not just rest and think it's done. Let's, let's really keep thinking about our visitors, the residents and the experience of this place, because if not, it's just going to keep getting more and more muddled and congested and it's not, you know. Some people are advocating for um, full pedestrianisation. That might be okay, might be the solution, or it might not, but let's, let's, uh, let's um, work continually to keep improving and keep having the visitors and the residents at the forefront of the thinking of what that solution is. It feels, um, 
it feels like it should be pedestrian when you talk about it having more visitors than Venice. Yeah. But it's a very pedestrian city. Yeah, and actually a lot of, I mean, I know it's, it's sort of it's supposed to be that. It's supposed to be um, traffic calming with pedestrians at, you know, as a priority. And a lot of people do, you know, see it all the time, the sort of blithely unaware that there is a bus coming up behind them or that there are cars. And I, yeah, it's, um, yeah. This is the, what we're discovering on this journey is that shared surface doesn't appear to be working <laughs> because I think initially the idea that uh, cars would yield to pedestrians, the pedestrian yields automatically because you would if a bus was yeah. heading for you. Um, so there seems to be a, a little bit of a revision mm. on, on the thinking, mm. although, you know, that if it were pedestrian only and we didn't have this problem with, with vehicle traffic, um, when Dixon Jones opened that scheme, it was absolutely remarkable to mm -hmm. see this beautiful yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. road. Uh, and then walking up it today, it's very, it's very different. There's uh, the Santander bikes, and then there's yes. some bike racks. Yeah. There's concrete yeah. blocks. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> it's all sort of, and it, yeah. And so, I mean, Dixon Jones, I, I believe, have been re-engaged to look at the whole place again, and particularly at this sort of. Um, issue around uh, safety, uh, whether their, their remit uh, extends to looking again at parking and things and pedestrianisation, I'm not sure, but they should be. And I think it really, you know, the, the people who live here and the people who work here in the museums do advocate and uh, work closely, but ultimately it is the council strategy and the council who have to commit to it. And, um, you know, they, they need to help drive um, that that sort of clarity and change and strategy, I think. So. I'm hearing this big role for the mm. the science museum or all of the museums in in working with the city because in York you're talking about these these big collaborations yeah. and looking at it. I mean, you're talking about this group coming around, together around this whole area. I mean, do you are you as outward looking as you are inward? Yes, very much so. And again, that's part of my role. So, for example, in York. I have been part of the group with Homes England and Allied and Morrison, who are the master planners and the city to help write the design guidelines for the master plan. Because for us, uh, quality matters, quality of the built environment uh, beyond our thresholds, because our visitors, you know, their, their, their experience starts before they get to us, you know, it starts online, it starts when they come to the tube station, it starts as they walk up the road and sort of, you know, all of that matters to us and it matters to us individually as the Science Museum and in South Kensington, it matters to all of us, all the organisations who have students here and who work, you know, um, so it really does matter. And for me, and actually it was interesting that um, when we started really, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, working and talking to uh, the partners in York Central. Um, Roger Maidlin was very helpful with his advice uh, to us uh, to really, uh, you know, focus on design and quality and make sure you get that right. So, so although I can't control or influence the commercial elements of it, or, you know, not really, I can be part of the conversations, but um, what I can influence and which I, re I work really hard to influence is the quality of the architecture, um, the public realm in particular. So in York, there's going to be a new square that's bigger than Granary Square that sits between our museum and York Station. 
it really matters to us that that is done um, to that level of consideration and quality and care. And uh, so, yeah, we have to be outward facing and uh, be engaged and not just uh, sitting behind our sort of museum walls um, thinking about what we do on our own. York is a historic city. Mm -hmm. What's your approach to heritage in the new design, or what's your view? Ah, well, I, yeah, see, that's interesting. So, talking about the museum, uh, so the, the whole York Central development is outside the Roman city walls, so, and it's Brownfield site. So, there is, I think, there's great opportunity actually to do something very contemporary. Um, and the you know, the extent of my influence over the sort of commercial and the housing development is limited. But Allies and Morrison have been very careful about thinking about um, the, the heritage, the use of materials, but no, not pastiche, there's no pastiche going on, but finding something that's appropriate to, um, to the city. Um, Gustafs and Porter are doing the, a lot of the public realm and the landscaping, and you know, a huge swathe of our site is going to become a new park, city park. Children's playground. Um, you know, it's at the moment it's all um, inaccessible railway track, and it's pretty miserable actually. So, um, and we, in our scheme for the park, there will be references to the railway heritage and the sort of materiality. When it comes to the museum, so the the biggest. Um, project that holds the museum's transformation together is a new building which will connect um, two listed structures um, over um, they're currently uh, split by a road that road is being stopped and re-diverted and so we're going to connect our buildings with a new building and I have said to the council that I want that to be a, um, a building of merit that we will be bringing great architecture to York of the appropriate scale and the appropriate sort of budget. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be some huge sort of Bilbao sort of iconic um, thing. You know, we, we have a budget to work to. And, but, um, you know, I said, how do you feel about us bringing that quality of architecture and placemaking to York? And they're like 100% behind it. And I, I think we can do that because we're not in the city walls, but I think we also have an obligation to do it because we are working in this incredibly important historic city. And um, because if we, we, we need to do the best job that we can, um, for, because that building's going to be there for 100 odd plus years, we need to um, create the best environment, the best quality space, all with our visitors and mission in mind. But you know, um, if, if we do it well, I think um, it, it is of huge benefit to the city and to the people who visit. So, so that's actually that's my big job for this year, is running the competition to find the architect who's going to work with us on that building. Very excited. Well, I think it just leaves me to thank you very much for today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for coming to see me at the Science Museum. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.